we'll get there. But I'm going to ask you guys an interesting question. Something for you, this might be an easy thing to, to recall. Um, some of you might take a minute. But how many of us would love to be in our 20s again? I'll just say a few. I see a few hands already like, all right. I mean, I, I think back on my 20s and, and I think of the freedom from responsibilities, not having to wake up before 7 a.m., not having to go to Little League on a Saturday morning, just having slow, drink your coffee, you know, at 10 a.m. on a Saturday morning, and I'll be honest, a higher metabolism. Remembering my 20s and a higher metabolism, oh, Lord, I do miss those days. Now, I realize that each generation, not just, you know, mine, the millennials, but every generation experienced their 20s differently. You know, some of us got married very young. Some of us had kids very young. And some of us started a career right out of college, like you got your diploma and you went right into the workforce. Now, I will say, I'm being a 34-year-old and eyeing 35 this October, which my dear sweet Rebecca has reminded me that at 35, Dad, you're getting old. She turns five this week. So 35 to five seems like a lot. Um, but I will say, being halfway through my 30s, I can still kind of remember what it was like to be 24. I mean, I can remember the, the first job that I ever had, I worked at a computer, I worked for a multimedia company making videos and, and graphic design and working on websites. And at that time, I was helping out in my church, leading worship and working with youth. I haven't changed in 10 years. That's the reality. Um, but I, I loved what I was doing because I also had, I was single and I didn't have kids and I had a higher metabolism, but I had freedom. I had freedom to do what I wanted, when I wanted. And my approach to faith at that time honestly wasn't any different. Doing ministry, so yes, being a church, and living a Christian in name only, life was kind of what I felt I needed to do. It's what I needed to do just to be right with God, to be in and be like, I'm saved, I'm good to go. But now I can say, 10 years later, I'm married and I have four beautiful daughters, and I realize I had so much to learn, and that my old life wasn't the life that God wanted for me, and he wanted something greater. So as we dive into God's word today, I want to repeat a quote that I shared last week, and some of you might have left scratching your heads like, what does Nate even mean by this? That's probably most Sundays I preach, like, what did Nate mean? Uh, but this quote is, uh, no man steps into the same river twice. So what this phrase kind of means is when we step into the water, yes, it's the same river. You step into the Mississippi, it's still the beautiful brown river that it is, but it's different water. Well, the water has changed. But when we read God's Word, it is still the same book. The words haven't changed. It's still that tangible piece of God's Word. But when we read the words, it's going to impact us differently. We're the ones that are changed, not His Word. So I just wanted to clarify that before we dive into God's words. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray today that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart are pleasing to you, that they're glorifying to you. That God, as we continue our, our work through the book of Galatians, that um, for those that have read it the, not read it before, for those that have read it a hundred times, that today there would be a fresh perspective, a different perspective and understanding. That God, when we do leave today, um, 
that your word is imprinted on our hearts. Maybe there's a verse that will stick out, that when we step away, that it is something that we carry with us this week. So, Lord, bless this time that we have together. In Jesus' name, amen. So, like I said, if you weren't here last week, we started a, a, a series called New Creation. I realized last week I never said anything, just let the, the video board speak for itself. Um, but we're in this, the study of Galatians. And we're, we're stepping ahead to chapter 2. We're not going to go through every verse because we would be here for many weeks and you don't want to hear me go through the whole book. Um, but we're hitting different themes. And uh, we're now to this point where Paul, you know, last week we talked about the gospel. And this week, Paul is uh, sharing of a recent run-in that he had with Peter. And yes, this is Peter the apostle, Peter the disciple, Peter that walked on water, that Peter that we all know and love from the chosen. And right away, Paul doing what he does calls Peter out. And he says, when Cephas, which is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. So this passage just kind of sets up our passage today, and we're going to dive a little deeper into that in a second. But our passage today is Galatians 2, 14 through 21, and that will be on the screen. So read along with me. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves among the sinners. Doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ did nothing, died for nothing. It's a long passage, and we're going to work through it together. So I'll be honest, it wasn't until the last few years that, as in growing in my, my studies, I started to learn a little bit more about Jewish customs, and I did this to understand kind of the historical context of Scripture. And as I said, I'll be honest, growing up in a Protestant home, that I, what I knew of Jewish culture unfortunately came from Mel Brooks movies. And if you've not watched any of these movies, I'm not recommending them. I'm just saying that I watched them uh, growing up, and uh, it is good to be king. Um, but that was an exposure that I had to Jewish culture. But also, I knew about them because of reading Scripture and knowing that the Israelites were the ancestors of the Jewish people today. So, not a lot that I know, and I would imagine that most of us would fall in this area not knowing a lot about Jewish culture 
So let me unpack that a little bit for you guys today. So looking back, we can look at the first century church when Paul wrote this letter to the people of Galatia. And we see in this passage that Paul is again frustrated, and he's frustrated at this melding of the Jewish faith and Christianity, that Judaism and Christianity have started to come together, and Judaism's kind of taken over a little bit. And chiefly, as we read, his frustration is firmly pointed at Peter, this disciple of Jesus, this man who got to live knowing Jesus, is flip-flopping. He's flip-flopping on an issue of whether it's okay to associate with the Gentiles, which, if you don't know, those are the people that were not Jewish, and again, he said, the sinful Gentiles. Kind of lays it out how the Jews felt about them. Now, Peter and his fellow Christians, they were enforcing laws from the Jewish tradition on the Galatian, on the, on the Gentiles in Galatia, so that, so that they would not be of alignment with Jewish Christians. And we see Paul's reaction in one of, in one of condemnation and correction towards Peter. And I know we all love to be corrected. Like, who doesn't love being corrected, right? Well, this past week, my dear sweet Ellie decided to correct Daddy. And uh, a little bit of backstory. Last, I think it was a year or two ago, our girls got one of those battery-operated Jeeps that every kid gets at some point in their time, in their lifetime. Our girls got a, a frozen Elsa and Anna little you know, battery-operated car that they can sit in and cruise around and all that. And I, being a good dad, laying down a good example, I said to them, when you're driving, you need to have both hands on the steering wheel. I'm telling my three-year-old <laughs> to have the rules of the road, have, you know, 10 and 2, have your hands on the steering wheel, you know, not, you know, not cruising with your right arm down. This past week, I was driving with, both, with just Ellie in the back of the car. We were going to get groceries, our favorite pastime. And I'm apparently being cool and driving with one hand, and I've got my right arm on the armrest. I'm just, you know, driving across the South Bridge, and I hear, Dad, both hands on the steering wheel. My dear sweet Ellie, yeah, you know, I'm talking about you. She corrected me on my driving. And Becca has done the same thing to Christine. We both have been at, on the receiving end of being corrected. And that's, that's a cute instance of, our, of a child correcting a parent. But no one really likes to be told, like, you're wrong. You are, what you're doing is wrong. No one wants to hear that. It's a lot cuter coming from a three-year-old or a four-year-old. But as Christians in the first century, we can look at these people, and we know that they were not even a generation removed of seeing Jesus Christ in the flesh. These disciples, they walked with him, they ate with him, they laughed with him. They also saw him beaten and crucified and died. And they also saw him come back to life and ascend to heaven. So if it makes us at all feel a little bit better, they backslid too into their old ways following the traditions of their laws and ancestors. So even the disciples, they had their shortcomings too. And as we read, Paul humbled Peter. He corrected him by reminding him of the fact that as believers in Jesus, we're not justified by our works, the old law. We're justified by faith. And we read this in Paul's, another of Paul's letters to the Ephesians as well, and the words will be on the screen. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. Love this verse. For it is by grace 
You have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. As we read through many of Paul's letters, we can see that one of his great works is in leading churches in the New Testament, and it was reminding them that Jewish Christians, that we are saved by God's grace alone. That is how we are all saved, by God's grace alone. Because grace alone means that God loves, he forgives, and he saves us not because of who we are or what we do, but because of the work of Christ. Our best efforts can never be good enough to earn salvation, but God declares us righteous for Christ's sake. We receive that grace through faith alone, and God even gives us the faith to trust him. We are not saved by obeying a list of do's and don'ts, but by grace through faith in Christ. And through that Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, but because by the works of the law, we'll no longer be justified. When we read in the Old Testament, we see the laws that were laid down in the Mosaic Covenant, the Ten Commandments. When God spoke to Moses and he gave them the Ten Commandments. Uh, he gave them as a directions on how to, to live life giving God glory. Soli Deo Gloria, as we talked about last week. But as we know, those good old Israelites, the Israelites could not do it on their own. The world itself could not do anything on its own to save itself. So fast forward to the new covenant when Christ came and he lived a sinless life and Christ's death on the cross fulfilled the old law put in place by God. And as well, it fulfilled the need for, pause, big church phrase, substitutionary atonement. I'm pretty sure I just said the first word wrong. Substitutionary atonement. And if you're not familiar with that term, if you're like, eyes just glazed over, all right. If you're not familiar with this term, I will try to explain it a little bit easier. Jesus' death was an atonement or a payment for God's wrath against humanity because of their sins. With Jesus' death, humanity was freed from this. And Paul's reminding the Galatians of the good news, which we talked about last week, the gospel, that we don't have to be beholden to the old ways because Christ took care of it for us. Reading on through the passage, we read on and we come back to this concern of being around Gentiles or, in the, again, in the Jewish eyes, sinners. And Paul rolls a little humor into this, and as the verse said, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners. Doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. Now, I will say through my, my 21st century lens, as I read this passage, Nate reads this, I see a little sarcasm that Paul has put here, which is not a bad thing. Sarcasm, is, it can be funny. And it's funny to me because I read this line does Christ promote sin? And my response would be, come on, man, he does not do that. But Paul, he's a little more reserved, a little more first century, and he just says, absolutely not, exclamation point. And then he follows this up with this straight Gandalf Yoda wisdom that has honestly had me scratching my head all week. And when he says, if I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. He is saying that if he goes back to his old ways, 
that he would be breaking the law by focusing on a works-based salvation and not salvation by faith in Christ and denying God's grace. Let me me repeat that because I tried to sound like Yoda there as well. He goes back and says that if he goes back to his old ways, if we were to go back to our old ways, he would be breaking the law by focusing on works-based salvation and not salvation by faith, which by, by, by faith in Christ and denying God's grace. So as we continue on, as Paul closes out the chapter, he renounces the law and he dies to his old self that he can live for God and be a new creation. And he even goes a little further saying it in a different way, which whenever we read something and it's kind of a repetition, they mean it. <laughs> and he says it in a different way, saying that he has been crucified with Christ and he is no longer the one living, but Christ in him. By this, the life he lives in faith of Jesus Christ, recognizing Christ's love for him, is a life sacrificed for him. And as we get to the final line, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Paul holds fast to God's grace, as we should too. And he ends with, if man could save himself by living by the law, Christ's death would have been meaningless. But if we take this line and flip it around, you can see it as truth, that that Christ died for a purpose. That living by the law would not grant righteousness, and that the grace of God is given to us. That's the truth. Finishing this passage, we see that Paul was trying to say to the church of Galatians is what he was saying. So, whenever we finish a passage like this, the question always comes up, what can we learn from this? We're not a first century church. We're a 21st century, 2022 church in you know, in Fulton, Illinois, what can we learn? What can we take away from this? We must die to our old selves, and we must be born again as a new creation in Christ. And as I was preparing this sermon, Christine got to see me geek out over how when you read Scripture and you read through Paul's letters, and and not just Paul's letters, just Scripture in general, you start to see the synergy, how different books of the Bible either tied together and different themes come together. And as I was going through all this, the phrase new creation is kind of what percolated up as I've been doing my studies in Galatians. And I had to hop to another book to solidify just this this fact that we are a new creation in Christ. So we're going to hop over to 2 Corinthians. And as as always, the words will be up on the screen. But this is from 2 Corinthians 5.17 through 21. And these might be familiar words to you, but I will read them. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us through himself, through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sin against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I don't know about you, but I never tire hearing the good news, the gospel, 
of Jesus Christ. Now, some of you in this room, you grew up in the Reformed tradition. And some of you grew up like me. I grew up Methodist, but maybe you grew up Lutheran, Catholic, etc. And then there are some of you here that you're just now coming to faith later in life. And some of you are still not sure where you land. You're like, I, Nate, I'm still kind of figuring this out, which, to be honest, I think we all are still kind of trying to figure some things out. You're all in the right place. God intended you to be here today. And the thing is, is we all have a story in our lives, either past or in the future, of when God reveals his grace to us. Now, I will say mine was, like maybe some of you, at church camp when I was 12 years old, and I heard the gospel explained, how Christ sacrificed himself for us. And that um, he sacrificed himself for me. And that God has grace for me in my sins. And that I could put my faith in him to lead my life and be an ambassador for Christ. And I will say in these past 22 years, I have seen God's covering in my life. I couldn't tell you the countless stories just in our last few years of marriage of where God has covered Christine and I, has covered our family, even before that where God has been working. And I know we all have stories of when God's covering has been there. And I I, I love this kind of analogy of that God's covering in our lives is kind of like an umbrella. When it's raining, kind of like it was, what, two days ago, (laughs) when it's raining, we know that when we put up the umbrella, that it doesn't stop the rain, but it does stop the rain from falling on us. Living under God's covering hasn't stopped the challenges in my life, but those challenges always haven't affected me the same way because normally if I wasn't underneath his covering, I would get rained on. I would be soaked. (laughs) But because of his covering, I've been able to live. So what was your story? Like I said, most of us have a story of how God revealed his grace. How did he reveal that to you, reveal himself to you? Can we let go of our old lives? Now, for some of you, the revelation is happening right now. And I know where my faith lies. It doesn't mean God's not done revealing himself to me. I'm a work in progress, as we all are, and God is revealing himself. And every day as we rise, we need to leave the old man or woman behind and pray for the strength to live into the life that God has called us. And don't forget your umbrella. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the love that you do have for us. Lord, as we hear the good news, as we remember Christ's sacrifice, not just once a week at church, but daily, that when we rise, we remember the good news. That God, your, your love for us, that the world will say that, that we are valuable because God loves us, but Lord, we are valuable because you do love us. And so Lord, I, I pray that as we look ahead, that when we work through who the old person was and we look to the new creation that you have, have made in us, that we can recognize you, that we can hear you and see you, and that we can look to the future and know that you are guiding us, that you are the lamp to our feet. I pray that for all of us, Lord, as we go about our day and into the week. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.